the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Hello, everyone. This is Al Fadi, and I want to welcome you back to a continuation of this amazing, fascinating series about Isaiah 53 and how rich uh, these uh, passages are as it applies to our Lord, who is identified in this book uh, at times as the suffering servant or the servant or my servant or many other titles, of course. And the list can go on and on and on, of course, uh, with us here to unpack all of this richness our dear brother, Anthony Rogers. And today we're focusing on the suffering servant and uh, the relationship to God incarnate. And of course, uh, um, Anthony, welcome back uh, as always. Uh, Thank you for taking time uh, to do so. Um, You know, Isaiah 53 has always been fascinating to me. In fact, I remember that was one of the first parts that when people were witnessing to me were showing me that the crucifixion was anticipated Uh, much, much earlier in the Old Testament, about 700 years before the coming of our Lord. And the reason why people are showing me this, because as you know, as a former Muslim, I denied the crucifixion altogether. And uh, it's something that I didn't even think it was supported by Scripture. Uh, Little that I knew, of course, that uh, it is there. Uh, I mean, people, of course, till this day, Muslims look for the exact word of the cross in there, but that doesn't mean, uh, you know, the whole thing is not clearly stated in there. So what is it about the uh, God incarnate when it's, you know, and its connection to Isaiah 53 that you would like to share with us today? Yeah, so so I want to begin by talking about how the, the text, because we can't avoid this, this is the, the whole point of it, uh, is talking about a suffering servant. It's against this backdrop that we really need to understand the lofty language that's also employed for him that sets him forth as God incarnate. It's precisely because he's God incarnate, as we'll see, that makes this suffering aspect of it so significant. Uh, But some, as you know, Al, have been bold enough to argue that Isaiah 53 is, is talking about a corporate entity, namely the nation of Israel. Right, But the text itself is clear that we're dealing here with a human being, right? A man. Isaiah 53 uniformly speaks of the servant in the singular. Elsewhere, when you have a corporate entity, it might use singular terms, but it's interchangeable with plural terms. There's some clear indication in the context of that kind of corporate language that indicates we're dealing with a corporate entity, not an individual. But Isaiah uniformly speaks of this person as an individual. In fact, the the text uses various terms with respect to the servant in the singular 67 times. Now, that's in the Hebrew. Don't go quoting or looking in the English for that. 
Uh, it refers to him in the singular in contrast to many nations and individuals throughout the, the chapter. And at certain points, in fact, the literal Hebrew is all the more emphatic about the individuality of this person, saying things like, uh, he himself has borne our griefs, 53.4. Uh, 53.5 says, he himself was wounded for our transgression. So note, it's emphatic and it's contrasted with the plural. He himself was wounded for our transgressions. 53.7 says, he himself was afflicted. Uh, 53.11 says, he himself shall bear their iniquities. Moreover, the passage refers to him as ish, a man, that's the Hebrew term for man, Mm -hmm. and he's distinguished as a man from B'nai Adam, the sons of men, 53.3, right? The text also speaks of his to'ar, his form, and his visage, mare, 52.14. Uh, and these two terms, by the way, are only used together one other place in the Bible, namely for Joseph, clearly an individual, right? Not a corporate entity. Uh, so th- this person is clearly an individual. The text mentions his soul, right? 53.10 says his soul shall see seed. 53.11 says uh, he shall see of the anguish of his soul. It- it's talking about an individual, an individual who will suffer. Now, while it's necessary to point all of this out, and you've already said where we're going, right? It's, it's not the really interesting thing about the identity of this person, right? When we look at what this text says about the identity of this figure, it's painfully obvious, not only that it can't be talking about the nation of Israel, but that it's talking about a divine person, right? No, notice what it says in 52.13. This is how the passage begins. Behold, my servant will prosper, right? He'll do wisely. It means he's going to succeed in what he does. He will be high and lifted up and exalted exceedingly. Though the Lord calls him here, my servant, and again later in 53, he, he piles up one phrase after another saying that he will be lofty, he will be lifted up, he will be exalted, virtually exhausting Al, every verb in the Hebrew language to express elevation. And, and then, as if that wasn't enough, he adds exceedingly. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, the significance of this, because I can already tell what some people are going to think immediately, you know, that doesn't mean that this person is God. But you have to read this in the context of the Old Testament prophets and especially the context of Isaiah. Isaiah tells us exactly who these terms properly belong to. In numerous places, Isaiah says that these terms do not properly apply to creatures, and in various places he tells us they do, and in fact exclusively do, apply to God. I'll just give you one example, but in Isaiah 2, listen to what the Lord says. The the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Notice this is the language of Isaiah 52, 13 used for the servant. It's talking about this servant who's going to come in the future, but here in Isaiah 2, Isaiah tells us that this is true of the Lord alone, okay? So Isaiah 2 clearly indicates the the divine identity of this figure. Now, uh, it it also does so in another way. 
I don't know if you wanted to add something to that, Al. Oh, no, no, you're, you're doing great, brother. I mean, and I'm glad, by the way, for, for the benefit of everyone who's watching this, the reason why Anthony is emphasizing the single figure versus the plurality, because some will tell you, and I understand some Jewish scholars are might be troubled with the language here and how it ties to Jesus, so they try to justify that it's talking about corporately about the nation of Israel, but as Anthony correctly stated it, I mean, Isaiah is consistent in using the singular as it applies to the suffering servant. Yeah, and the fact that it uses language that can only be used for God proves it can't be the nation of Israel. Right, right, right. right. Now, there's a there's a second way that this text indicates the divine identity of this figure. There's a title that's used for him, and a lot of people miss it. In Isaiah 53, 1, it says this, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. Okay, so this one it's, is the one that's being talked about, the, the servant. He will grow up before him like a tender shoot. But he's called in 53.1, the arm of the Lord, who has believed our report, to whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot. Well, this language is not original to Isaiah. This, this expression is used throughout the Old Testament. In fact, one of the first times that we meet this expression, in fact, as far as I know, it's the first time, as I recall, uh, the first time it's used is in connection with the first exodus. Right After the Exodus, in Exodus 15, the people sang a song of redemption and victory, and one of the things they do in the song is praise the Lord's right hand or arm for accomplishing the victory for them. Okay, So, so this, is, this is significant. They're, they're praising God, but they do so by means of praising his arm or right hand. Now, you might just think that's an idiom or a figure of speech. But as you go through the prophet Isaiah, you begin to see that Isaiah doesn't take it that way. Now, before looking at, at Isaiah, uh, here's an interesting statement in Psalm 98. It says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, right? So if you have the original song at the Exodus, then a new song would be talking about what? A new Exodus. Mm -hmm. But notice what it says, the full verse, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. So the first exodus was accomplished by God's right hand or arm, who is praised in a song, Exodus 15. And then we're also told in Psalm 98, other passages as well, that there's going to be a new exodus, which will give rise to a new song that also focuses its praise on the Lord's arm. Okay, so notice in light of this what Isaiah tells us in the lead up to Isaiah 52 and 53. In Isaiah 51, the prophet says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Notice he's directly addressing the Lord's arm. Awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? Rahab means worthless one. It's a way of referring to Egypt. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? So here you have the prophet calling upon the Lord's arm to save his people like he did in the past. He's calling out to the arm to bring about a new exodus. And now notice what it says in Isaiah 52. Again, right before the suffering servant prophecy. It says, 
How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. That was 52.7. In the same context, 52.10 says, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. And so here are just two of the ways that Isaiah 52 and 53 indicate that while this individual will be an individual and he will suffer, he will be a true human being that goes through excruciating suffering, nevertheless, the identity of this figure is that he is a divine person. And that's what makes the suffering of this one so puzzling to us, right? And so uh, momentous. We have to figure out, and we will as we look further at this text, what this is all about. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Well done, brother. And uh, everyone, I hope you're enjoying this fascinating series. This is rich theological stuff, by the way, that is needed for Christians to know, not just for doubters, Muslims, others, uh, by the way. And if you're a Muslim watching this, I hope this will give you now uh, the answer to the question about the crucifixion, the fact that it was mentioned in Old Testament, the fact that the very name of Jesus, that sometimes we uh, we get attacked and saying uh, it never appeared anywhere in the scripture. Well, you can see that uh, this figure, the divine person, his name was mentioned in a variety of places in the Old Testament, including in this particular book, and his identity is revealed as a divine person. Thank you, brother. Thank you, everyone. Until next episode, have a blessed day. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAInternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. Hello, everyone. I want to welcome you back, of course, to this fascinating video series on Isaiah 53. As myself and uh, Reverend Anthony Rogers are touching on a variety of aspects of this rich book and rich passage. Last time, Anthony did an excellent job in pointing out that the suffering servant is not just any figure. It is obvious from the language used that he is a single person that has divine attributes, or at least divine attributes being ascribed to that person. Today, we'll continue, of course, along the same lines. So, Anthony, welcome back, brother. Thank you so much, Al. Great to be with you. So, what is the focus today uh, when it comes to uh, not just the identity of the suffering servants, but other attributes and other uh, uh, events that are applicable uh, to him. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about the fact that this upright individual, this servant of the Lord, is going to suffer and die, going to be buried, resurrected, and exalted. Now, I think it's clear just through reading it, right, on the face of it, prima facie, this text teaches these things. But there are those who don't like this idea, don't want it to be the case, and so they fight tooth and nail against it. Uh, So that's what we're going to look at. Wonderful, wonderful. So take us away, brother. All right. So uh, the the very fact that this individual is referred to as my servant in 5213 indicates his uprightness. 
But, but this is all the more clear from Isaiah 53, 11, where he's called my righteous servant. Okay, that's a title that's only used for this individual in the entire Hebrew Bible. So he's clearly a righteous individual. Well, in light of this, it's surprising, but nonetheless clear that this one would die. You know, we're used to thinking of death and sin as going together, but for some reason, this otherwise righteous individual dies. So what gives, right? Uh, We'll speak in the, the next episode about the reason he would die and the significance of it. But for now, I just want to hammer home the, the fact of the matter. The, the, the text is plain about this. Okay, Again, because as you know, Al, some people deny this. They deny that it actually speaks about this one dying. But right. notice in, in 52.14, it speaks of his appearance being marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Now, this is just for starters, but here we're told that his visible appearance will be so pummeled uh, and, and that this would go beyond ordinary disfigurement. He, he's going to be subject to such cruel torture and punishment uh, that it's as if he's being tortured more than any other figure. The expectation that this would end in death is, is I think, clear here. But uh, in any case, we know that it's not going to be a light thing. In 53.4, it speaks of him being stricken smitten and afflicted. Notice how it enumerates the phrases. Okay. It's, it's not just, you know, giving one or, you know, two things, but it's piling these things up. This is intended to uh, make you feel the force of uh, just how horrendous this is. The next verse 53, five speaks of him being chastened, scourged and crushed. And, and 53, seven says he would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. Now, for most people, this would be sufficient to say, okay, the the text teaches that the servant was going to die. But for those who still hold out and and say that the servant's death was not foretold here, note what's pointedly stated in 53.8 and 53.9. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, his offspring, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So here in verses eight and nine, it speaks of him being taken away, cut off out of the land of the living. It speaks of his death and his grave. And so anyone arguing that this one would not die is simply an obscurantist, right? Such a person doesn't want to see or acknowledge the truth. Clearly, this figure would die. Now, I started off, Al, by talking about the uprightness of the servant, because unless you see his death against that backdrop, the backdrop of his uprightness, you know, you won't sufficiently be jarred by what the passage uh, is saying, uh, you know, namely that he's dying. You know, why, you're supposed to ask, why is this one dying? Again, we're going to talk more about that last time. But by the same token, unless one recognizes the fact of this one's death, then he or she can't appreciate the significance of other things said in the passage. For instance, the text goes on to say things like, he will see seed. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He will intercede for transgressors, and the the language there means he will continually intercede. This is going to be an ongoing intercession. That's what Jesus does as our high priest. 
Yeah, absolutely. But so, but so notice this, Al. If, if this person dies, this this How just isn't what you'd expect to hear, right? Uh, exactly. I mean, like, meaning you, his service stopped, but that's not the case here, right? What all of this presupposes, and you and I know, is that this one who would die would also be raised back to life and mm-hmm. be exalted to the highest heights. In fact, this is the very note on which the passage begins, right before Isaiah unloads on us this heavy message of the suffering servant of the Lord, this anointed figure, this one who bears the Spirit, Isaiah tells us, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will succeed. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. So we're told that this figure, far from everything terminating in his ultimate ruin, this is all going to turn out successfully. He's going to be exalted to the highest height and continue uh, carrying out the will of the Lord, uh, interceding for transgressors, dividing the spoils to them. Uh, so this text speaks about this righteous figure as both God and man, to summarize from previous episodes as well. And it says that he's going to die, be buried, and rise again and exalted into heaven. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Uh, we have a couple of minutes left. Um, would you like to either continue along this uh, line of this discussion or tie it to what's going to happen next in the next episode? Well, so in uh, the next episode, we're actually going to unpack the significance of this. We're going to see why it was that he died, how it could be. Uh, I mean, one, if he's God, how could he die? We know the reason to that, because he became a man. He's a human being, as the text presents him. But the, the question still lingers, why would he die? And what, what is the significance of his death? What is it that his death was going to accomplish? So we'll, we'll look at the substitutionary atonement of the servant, and we'll look at the doctrine that results from this, known as the doctrine of justification, which is so critically important in the New Testament. Uh, this text will teach us that this servant, by virtue of what he does, brings about the basis for God to justify us, to, to deliver us from condemnation. Amen. And, and really, uh, one application point for people to understand what is so significant about this for believers, and if they're using it apologetically speaking, how can they utilize something like this, maybe in the next two minutes, if you don't mind? Yeah. So I've told the story before. People that know me may have heard this. My father-in-law is Jewish. My wife is a Christian, but she converted in her teen years. And so when I met her, her parents were still reeling from her conversion. And uh, I used to get in a lot of protracted arguments with my father-in-law. And he would argue vociferously against Christianity. And one day when he came over our house, we were going to have dinner. And I said, Dave, his name is Dave, good Jewish name, David. I said, Dave, I said, let's not get into a big argument today. I said, maybe we could do this. I said, I'd like to read something to you. I'd like you just to listen to it and then give me your honest reaction. I said, I'll let you say as much as you want. I might just say one sentence or two in response. I said, but uh, I just want you to give me your honest reaction and then we can have dinner and so forth. And so I read it to him, Isaiah 52 through 53, but I didn't tell him where I was reading from. And at the end of it, I said, what do you think about that, Dave? And he said, well, we don't believe that. And I said, what do you mean by we? And what, what do you mean we don't believe that? And he said, we, he goes, Jews. He goes, I'm Jewish. He says, you know that we don't believe that. I said, believe what? And he said, all that stuff about 
uh, Jesus and the crucifixion. I said, well, what do you mean Jesus and the crucifixion? He goes, you just read it. He goes, it's obvious. He goes, it's talking about Jesus and the crucifixion. Oh, and dear. I said, Dave, I said, Dave, dear Dave, I said, this text was written 700 years before the coming of Christ, before these things happen. There's no question about it. We even have manuscripts that predate these things. And so this shows a person's honest impression when they read this text, right? There are a lot of people that try to throw up roadblocks, stumbling blocks, try to get around this, scuttle the point of this text. But when they're just being honest with the text and reading it like my father-in-law was, they know that it looks like it's talking about Jesus to them. So that's a huge apologetic point. This has huge evidentiary value. Excellent, excellent uh, story, really. I mean, it sums it up. Uh, uh, first, we as Christians need to be familiar with things like this. We need to know where to go uh, to provide a proof. I mean, anyone can ask you, prove to me that uh, Jesus fulfilled prophecies of Old Testament, especially his suffering, crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. Uh, we need to know that. I mean, uh, it's a fair question. We can't just say, well, because uh, my pastor told me so. No. I mean, you have the scripture, you have the Holy Spirit that should really enlighten you and empower you. But at the same time, uh, the story that Anthony mentioned, how simple it was. I mean, without mentioning it's from Isaiah, the person was convicted to realize it's talking about Jesus. And of course, uh, that's that's a very powerful testimony in and of itself. Thank you, brother, for sharing this. And uh, everyone, uh, stay tuned for the next episode. Until then, have a blessed day. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.